Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And after a tumultuous week in the news, we're going to sit back and relax and get away from it all with the escapist viewing that is Hulu's original series, The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Yeah, pretty dark. Yeah, it's pretty dark. Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And since we've already covered dystopias back in SVU number eight, when we discussed Starship Troopers, and since, frankly, I think we're getting plenty of dystopia anyway, if there's enough out there all over the place, Fine. we thought we would take another tactic uh, in honor of the female gaze that Handmaid's Tale works to represent, which can be credited uh, largely to executive producer Reed Morano, the cinematographer turned director who helmed the series' first three episodes. We're going to recommend some films featuring female cinematographers. But first, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on cable, where we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. And Matt, you are up this time around. What have you got for us? Yeah, let's more escapist fare, really. Nothing better than this. In my first movie, probably the, um, I would say its success is probably maybe the biggest story of the year in terms of cinema. Not the top grosser of 2017, but it is the number six film on the list right now. Ahead of movies like Kong Skull Island and Fifty Shades Darker, even though it only costs something like four and a half million bucks and is from a first-time film director, it's really pretty remarkable. It is Get Out, the feature debut from comedian and actor Jordan Peele. Daniel Kaluuya stars as Chris, a black man who goes home with his white girlfriend, Rose, who's played by Allison Williams, uh, to meet her parents for the very first time. They are played quite wonderfully, quite uncomfortably by Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener. And um, the initial awkwardness of meeting his girlfriend's parents slowly gives way to out-and-out horror. The movie is part Twilight Zone, part sketch comedy, and very disturbing at times. It's also a very sharp satire of race and class. And I think beyond the insights, uh, you know, on, on those levels, I think it's also just a very relatable, super dark comedy, um, no matter who you are. If you have ever made one of these trips to meet your in-laws, possible in-laws for the first time, uh, that is a very uncomfortable scenario. And I still have horrible flashbacks that this movie helped me relive of meeting my wonderful in-laws for the first time, especially my 
uh, absolutely wonderful, but very intimidating father-in-law. Uh, it was really bringing me back. It takes the uh, inherent anxiety in that scenario and just blows it up to nightmarish extremes. It's great. It's, uh, I think it's still, in my opinion, one of the year's best movies so far. If you missed it in theaters, definitely check it out on VOD. That is Get Out! Should have had an exclamation point in the title, I think. That's it's the implied. one problem. It's implied. I don't, I don't like implication. I like you clear like it, statement. Just lay it out there. Yeah, I don't, like, I don't like subtlety. Guess who's coming to dinner? Exclamation point! <laughs> or question mark. Or both. <laughs> Guess who's coming to Guess dinner? Guess who's coming to dinner? Get out. It is available uh, on VOD right now. Uh, next up on VOD is another of the big hits of 2017 and a fairly big creative risk for a movie of its size. It's Logan, the third and supposedly final solo Wolverine film, at least starring Hugh Jackman as the hairy, spiky X-Men uh, in this film. Loosely based on a Marvel comic series that is set in a dark future where Wolverine is like the last superhero alive. Uh, Jackman's Logan is slowly dying and caring for a very old Professor Xavier, played by Patrick Stewart, whose super-powered mind is now technically a weapon of mass destruction because he has been afflicted with this degenerative brain disease, which I thought was a very clever twist on that character. This is not a superhero movie for kids. It is R-rated. Definitely earns that rating with plenty of graphic violence and profanity. There's even a little bit of nudity. But, (gasps) yes, I know. To my fainting couch. To me, my fainting couch. But um, Logan, also a very smart movie. More than just a a mindless superhero action flick. Heavily inspired by westerns like Shane, which actually plays a fairly significant role, on-screen role in the film. It considers the way we look at these hero figures in our culture these days. It's probably the most thoughtful movie of its kind, I would say, since The Dark Knight. Not as good, I don't think, as that movie. But in terms of like taking the figure of the superhero and considering what it means in 20-whatever, I think there are very few movies that have done that as intelligently as, as, as The Dark Knight. I think Logan comes pretty close. I saw it this week in black and white and? on the big screen, and it looked good. You know, I think it would look, you know, it's a Western. It's not a, they call it Logan Noir, but it's a Western. It's not a film noir. Right. And as a lot of the movie is set at daytime, and that stuff doesn't look as cool in black and white as the nighttime scenes. There's a scene, if you've seen Logan already on a farm, that looks amazing in black and white. But a lot of it, um, I thought it looked great, but it didn't really add a ton. But it's a movie that's definitely worth seeing. So Yeah, I did not feel a great hunger to see it in black and white, but I do really love this movie. I, I, I think maybe even more than you do. So. Yeah. So that is Logan on VOD on May 23rd. And finally, a movie I haven't seen yet, but I've heard good things about it. I was hearing good things about it at Sundance, where it premiered. It's available on VOD on May 26th. It's called Berlin Syndrome. And I'll read you the plot description. A passionate holiday romance takes an unexpected and sinister turn when a photojournalist wakes up one morning locked in her suitor's apartment, and he has no intention of letting her go. Teresa Palmer plays the photojournalist. Um, yeah, I didn't get to see this one at Sundance. Did you, Allison? I did not. I, I, you know, a couple of people, you know, because it sounded, it sounds sort of like, oh, I've seen, I feel like I've seen this movie, but well, I heard certainly from, no shortage of like women getting abducted, sure. and treated terribly, definitely not, and that's in, especially in the horror genre, right? And that's sort of why I didn't prioritize it at Sundance. But when I, you know, people who did see it, they all said, no, actually, it's pretty good. You should check it out. So that is Berlin Syndrome. That's going to be available on VOD on May twenty sixth. 
club. That's right here. Why did you come to Berlin? You know those life experiences that people talk about? Came here. People who travel alone are usually in search of something. What makes you think I'm alone? I see nobody. <laughs> Berlin is full of these empty places. The knock is prescribed, because tonight this room is her domain. Come in. It's a little thing, but in this house, little things mean everything. Good evening. Dear? Now let's get started. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we turn the decision as to what we should review next over to you, our listeners, by having you vote on one of three options. In the last episode, we had you choose between a trio of talked about series that are exclusive to streaming Netflix's Dear White People. Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, and Amazon's I Love Dick. And there was no contest. The Handmaid's Tale ran away with first place with 54% of the vote. The Handmaid's Tale is adapted from Margaret Atwood's acclaimed 1985 dystopian novel centered on the experiences of a character named Offred, of Fred, a patronymic reflecting the man to whom she essentially has been given. She's played by Elizabeth Moss in the series, with Joseph Fiennes as Commander Fred Waterford, the head of her household, Yvonne Strahovski as his wife, Serena, and Alexis Bledel and Dowd, O.T. Fagbenle, uh, Max Minghella, and Samira Wiley, among the other characters, some of whom we've only seen in flashbacks. The show skips between the present and, in some ways, the even more terrifyingly recognizable recent past. The present is an oppressive fundamentalist state called Gilead in what used to be the eastern United States before a fertility crisis led to the birth and infant survival rate dropping and then a series of terrorist attacks allowed a new regime to take over in the ensuing crisis. In Gilead, women are, for their own protection, they're assured, divided up into groups and roles. Uh, The barren wives of the men in power are at top. The Marthas are infertile servants and uh, the handmaids who are clad in red and made to wear bonnets, are required to submit to a form of ritualized rape once a month uh, as the commanders attempt to impregnate them, because they are still fertile, to obtain the children they're not able to have with their wives. It is a brutal world in which anyone who does not submit to its oppression or who does not fit into its roles is executed or sent to die in camps. Uh, But what is marked, marked about The Handmaid's Tale is the way in which it approaches its storytelling visually. The showrunner is Bruce Miller, but uh, Reed Morano, who worked as a DP for a long time before making her directorial debut the other year, she directed the first three episodes and creates, I think, a distinctive visual style with the assistance of the series DP, Colin Watkinson. Uh, In particular, she uses this overhead God's eye view but also creeps really close to Moss's face to capture the way she has to kind of peek out around blinders, literally, she has to wear this bonnet, but also she's supposed to keep her eyes meekly on the ground and avoid eye contact. So my question for you, Matt, 
Beyond how far did you get into this series? Uh, I've watched six episodes, the six episodes that are available so far. My question to you is, how do you feel that this visual approach does or doesn't shift the way you think about portrayals of violence against women? You know, it's often, uh, we're often, it's often critiqued uh, that portrayals of violence against women are like turned into spectacle, whether that's the intention or not. Does the camera work here manage to tilt that away a bit to make these horrors more experiential? Mm, that's an interesting question. Well, first of all, I, I watched four episodes. Um, that was as much as I was able to get get to, both in terms of t- time-wise and also like the emotional uh, limit I could take. I-, I found this show to be excellent, but very like debilitating to watch. It's hard. It was hard to keep like, you know, when, at the end of an episode when the little Hulu logo is, you know, like they have like the little play and it like auto plays and you can hit the play button and... You know, it's like, it's almost like, for me, it was like the opposite of a binge watch. It was like I wanted to, it was like a purge watch. I wanted to like stop watching. I was like, oh God, every episode I like, I wanted to take a shower afterwards. Yeah, it's it, brutal. It's, it's not a show you, in which you want to immerse yourself for hours. No, no, it is. I think it's exceptionally crafted. And I think visually it is one of the most um, well-made sort of TV shows. You know, this sort of, uh, whatever you want to call it, peak TV or however you want to describe this era that we're living in where there's so much great television. I think the one area where a lot of it still kind of lags behind is in the area of visuals that they all, they still, you know, at best a lot of good TV shows even are kind of workmanlike in terms of their visuals. And this one has a really strong style. And as you were pointing out with your question, it is clearly made with a lot of care visually. And it's not just like, let's just get, we got to get, you know, it's not the obviously story is important, but the visuals here are clearly given extra attention. And I really appreciated that in terms of your question about how the visuals make you feel or how they affect the sort of the treatment of violence. Um, yeah, it's, I, I was just sort of struck by those close-ups of Elizabeth Moss's face and how much she does because a lot of the show I mean she has a voiceover narration where she gets to sort of explicitly say what she's feeling sometimes very darkly funny some of those moments that's really the only comedy in the show are some of those really sort of sardonic voiceovers that she gets but just when she's not talking and the camera is so close to her face and we're watching her react to these things oh my goodness what an incredible actress she is and did we I think we reviewed Top of Top we of the did, Lake, yeah, and I was not a fan of that show, yeah. even though I love her, and she had to do that terrible accent, and right. I just it was, was not her strongest accent. I love Top of the Lake. But yeah, you it, were a much bigger fan yes. of that than I was, even though I love Elizabeth Moss and I loved her on Mad Men. I thought she's so fantastic here, and she's doing stuff that not a lot of people could do. Where it really is watching her and seeing her, you know, the the way that she's, you know, like both. She's putting on a front for the people around her and trying to be, as you said, she has to pretend to be meek and servile. And when you're seeing sort of you, when you're so close because the camera is really close and these close, you get to see the sort of miniature cracks in that facade happening like in real time. Um, I just thought it was amazing. And, and I, I mean, she's incredible. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons to like the show, but she might be the, the best reason. Yeah, I agree. And also those close-ups call attention to how little other people actually look at her as an individual, right? She's in these these uniforms. The the women are putting in these uniforms that are meant to turn them into just a kind of 
cluster of of non-individuals into literally right. functional bodies. Yeah. So those close-ups are a continual reminder of her like individuality and her personal suffering. And all, they also, you know, they wear those bonnets, as you said. Like in wide shots, it's almost imp- always impossible to see their faces by design. Like they're made so that you can't see these women. And so these close-ups almost like, it's almost like a, you know, like a, feminist counterattack or something like you are going to look at the you know at least the audience i mean you are going to observe these women you're going to witness what they're suffering through and like you're not going to be able to look away because the camera is going to be so close that there's almost nothing else on screen except their faces sometimes yeah and i do feel like the show i mean in particular um in portraying the ceremony which is the euphemistic name given to the nights in which they with witnesses and everyone participating try and conceive a child and she has to kind of lie there in between in the lap of the wife who of course resents her deeply of course like and it's such a disturbing scene and i think you know this you can feel the show wrestling with how to portray this scene so that it is not sexualized so that it is clear what she is experiencing, like the violation she's experiencing. And it just holds like the first time you see that scene, it holds on her face as she's, as this is happening. Yeah. And you can see her trying to disassociate herself from her body. And I think that I do really appreciate, I mean, as much as it's so difficult, I mean, the more that, the more that uh, something tries to make you experience what it's character is experiencing, the more kind of difficult it gets to watch. But, uh, I mean, I, I do appreciate the degree to which the show tries to get you inside her head mm-hmm. and to to really deal with and reckon with the horror of of having to submit to this and of being feeling so powerless. Those scenes are incredible and also incredibly difficult to watch. <laughs> um, then again, there's a lot of this show that's very difficult to watch. It's a it is a is a tough sit. I uh, yeah, like I I think I watched one episode one the first night and then i watched i like powered through like the three more another night but it was like it was difficult i mean the, the thing that i found sort of funny is that i mean i guess i don't know how many people are actually watching this it certainly seems based on the amount of stuff i'm seeing online the reaction online that it is popular and it's getting a lot of at least online buzz but it did strike me as a little odd that you know like when a movie comes out like manchester by the sea and i tell people god manchester by the sea is terrific you really need to see it and they're like oh i heard it's depressing i don't want to see it and i'm like you know it's not it's not uh you know it's not a fairly brothers movie but it's it has some lightness it's good you should check it out and here this show is just like so punishing like it, it this show actually does make Manchester by the Sea almost look like a comedy like in comparison because it's so dark and it's so and it's I mean it's six episodes so far 10 episodes total it's like I do find it interesting that people will like get more sucked in by a television show I don't know maybe it is the fact that you can just click a button on your television or your computer or whatever whereas going out to the movie theater is more of a commitment perhaps i don't know but i do find that interesting that people get so into shows like this um but they seem less enthused about movies maybe that's just anecdotal and not true but something i feel i do feel like there are a lot of very grim movies out there or very like that deal with very difficult subject matter i i do feel like tv asks a different commitment of you in that Mm. it says will you keep coming back for this but i do feel here is something else that i've been thinking about and i've watched a few more episodes than you and i've like I've been thinking about this a lot in contrast to the book, which is largely Alfred is a way to look into this world, mm-hmm. but is not necessarily 
and and we're still a lot of the elements that are in the show are there but that the show is going to build on this book and obviously go beyond it and it's already been renewed for another season you know mm-hmm. it is it has to develop more of a story than the novel does by its very nature i i am kind of interested in the idea of the plot it's going to grow yeah. because right these first episodes for all that i think they're really strong they are basically just about how we got there, yeah. how we got to this point, mm-hmm. you know, and you I have to do more. And I, I mean, that in some ways makes it more welcoming. The, the promise of like a release in some way makes it more welcoming. But that's but interesting. Yeah. But in some ways, I think it undermines the intent of the original material. Oh, really? Well, I think only in just that the intent of the original material was not to allow that release mm-hmm. was to kind of be like. This is a life lived in oppression with a question mark at the end, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of what happens. I mean, I don't know. I, does the idea that this will eventually, presumably, offer some hope make it more appealing to you to potentially go back to? Or what do you think? Well, that's it. I mean, that's a tough question, too, because, I mean, do you really think there will be hope? I wouldn't shock me if there was, if it just got, no, if, yes, I do but the end has- of this was even darker or more depressing than what's happening right now you have the promise of a resistance out there potentially yes you have question marks about what happened to other characters right we you know we don't know the fate of them yet sure i i do feel like you can't just have a show that is about a life let let in misery without especially one that is by design so powerless so like short on options yeah without offering something out there Mm. because she has no like otherwise what can happen to her? Well, you know? you're, no, you're right. And that, that you're actually hitting on something that I would say was one of my sort of negative critiques of the show in general, which was that it does feel the world is engrossing, very well created, the acting is impeccable, but there isn't a lot of story in these first couple of episodes. It really is. It's setting the stage, and it's setting the stage I've, I've, a little slowly. And, you know, there is a sort of glimmer, as you said, of like this, the very end of the first episode hints at this, you know, like there's this resistance or, oh, there's the mystery of there's an eye, which is like a spy essentially in the house that she's that Alfred is living in and at least through the first four episodes that really doesn't get picked up to a large degree I mean you see what happens to Avglen which is Alexis Bledel's character and she is the one who sort of warns her and then her character there's some I thought some interesting twists that happen with her character for sure but there's also I mean it's there's no sort of sense of momentum in this show it is very much you are trapped and perhaps by design that you are like sort of there's no escape for for Alfred so there's no escape for us that it's this very sort of suffocating um, world but I did feel like you know to get me personally to keep coming back and if you're asking me am I going to finish watching the season um, I feel like the answer to that question would be, well, if I was caught up to my wife, who's more into it than I am, yes, because we would watch it together. But I'm a little worried she's already so far ahead of She's like, she watched all six like you that are available right now. I don't know that I'm able to catch up where we're going to be able to watch it together. And then I don't know that I'm going to be able to keep up. And then I don't know if I'm going to prioritize <laughs> it. Because it is such a, it's it's incredibly well, I, you know, this mo- in a way it reminded me of the movie Requiem for a Dream, which is a beautiful, incredibly well-made movie, but so dark and so depressing. It's like, when I saw that movie, I loved it, and I was like, I, I, I'm never going to watch this movie again. And I, to this day, I still have not. And I, I, like you were saying, it's like getting someone to willingly come back um, without any sort of like hope or what's what's the thing that they're that she's fighting for or going to like the goal or whatever. It's tough. I don't know. Uh, maybe if you keep watching and you say, oh, it, it there's there is some sort of you know there there is a 
some sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, however faint or however distant, then maybe I'll go, all right, maybe I can, maybe I'll go back. I don't know if this is marking me as a real, you know, as a somebody who needs uh, incredibly um, uplifting storytelling. I don't know, but these are my honest uh, thoughts about the well, show I mean, so that's far. Traditionally, been the way that we have taken stories about dystopia, right? Sure. Like they usually come through. So often they come through the vision of someone overthrowing the dystopia or figuring a way out of the dystopia, right? Or at least having a, like a potential of a way out. You know, right. maybe they fail. Sometimes they succeed. Sometimes they, sometimes fail. they fail. There's right. some good examples of that, which are great. You know, movies and TV shows as well. But at least there's something. Like right now, there's not a whole lot of that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I think it's. I understand the nature of, of that requirement. But I will say. I am less interested in how I, the most interesting parts of this show for me are often in the flashbacks right. and the ways, I mean, which are horrifying because they're set in like now, right? Basically, yeah. All of the cultural like talking points, Tinder, Uber. they talk about Tinder, Uber. Yes. Yeah. The music, the like, and then like the slippage, the way they show slippage, like the way that like things turn against women. Yeah. Uh, the Very ways, disturbing. Right. The marches. Like, I don't, <laughs> it's a really tough yeah. time to watch people marching in vain. And then being attacked <laughs> yes. brutally by these, my God, they're not really police officers, right. this force, this right. religious force. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I think that the horror of that, it is a really bold move to draw a line so close you know like we get to this dystopia clearly within a few years according yeah. to the show uh, I, and I think that it does a very good job in the flashbacks of showing that ease in I am less interested in showing how potentially get out because I feel like I don't know that seems against kind of the point in a way though I understand the function of it one thing I will say my biggest critique I hate the music cues yeah, the music cues, they're a bold choice. It's very, they're very sort of, I would, I, this is going to sound more insulting than me, but it's almost like cutesy. They're like, you know, like you very, me? yeah, a very left field, you know, yeah. these, these, you know, like what's the song from, um, there's Heart of Glass is in there in, in one, in the, uh-huh. actually one of those scenes that's like a protest march. Yeah. There's Don't sort of you this, forget about me. Yeah. That's, yeah. From, from the breakfast club. Very, yeah. very strange. Like deliberately jarring. Deliberately jarring. jarring. Like I, yeah, I, I just, they feel so kind of like on the nose to me in terms of often like what they're trying to. The needle drops as yeah. they say these days. Yeah. I mean, I think what the, yes, at times I found them very sort of, I think like you're saying, sort of distracting. But what the times that I liked them was when they were sort of like under, you know, like the way they use the song for the breakfast club, like it all, it's, it's portrayed as sort of this, like when they use it the first time, it's like, yeah, she's, She's got sort of this glimmer of hope, and then that's the moment she discovers what's happened to Alexis Bledel's character, and the the song stops on a dime, and it is sort of undercutting the sort of traditional way a song like that is used in a show like this. And I thought that was clever and kind of effective, but I do agree overall that there's there are times where they it's verging on too on the nose, too cutesy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, otherwise, I think it's a really well-made show, and it's trying to do something very counter to a lot of tv right now uh 
it just it, that is I, that I've ever seen. Honestly, I do also want to say that you know the fact that this is a Hulu show, and I haven't watched a ton of Hulu's original programming. This is by far their biggest original series, and I would say from what I've seen, by far their best in terms of production oh, yeah. value and in the intelligence of it and, and real and ambition. Yeah. So I give them a lot of credit for doing. I mean, this is this is serious stuff. This is like this this stands shoulder to shoulder with anything I've seen from any other you know so called you know prestige channel whether it's hbo or amc or netflix or whatever like this is agreed this is this definitely is right up there it's punishing um but in a way that i mean i think also shows the ambition and also the extent to which it's uncompromising like it's not messing around this show is serious it's legit it is for real but it is not (laughs) escapist it is not something to watch after you've been watching like the uh new york times newsfeed all day that's for sure yeah that was a tough one to come back to yeah well that is the handmaid's tale and you can watch it on hulu i want this will sound silly i'd like to play a game with you a game yes do you know how to play yes good to talk about female cinematographers this time around just because it seemed a good time to just talk about and think about who actually photographs what you see on screen you know um there are according to san diego state's study that they do every year of like women in tv and film in independent film 11 percent of the cinematographers in the last year were women and i think less than that maybe six percent in 2015 of the high grossing films of the big studio movies. Uh, no woman has ever been nominated for best cinematography. Uh, it's the only category apparently in which there's never been a female contender other than, you know, the acting awards, obviously. Uh, cinematography tends to be looked at as more physical, uh, which has been used as an excuse as to why there are so few women, though obviously cameras have changed and often DPs are allowed to have camera operators, so it's not that valid an excuse. Uh, As Marisa Alberti, who's one of the cinematographers I picked, told the LA Times in 2015, uh, at the beginning of her career, she was asked, uh, can the little lady handle the big lights? And she responded, uh, I had to say, the little lady doesn't carry the big lights. She points and the big guys carry the lights. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I can't believe yes. that's real. I mean, I can. Yes. But it's depressing but, you know, that it is. I mean, I don't like a and lot. And then she said, under his eye. Under his eye. Uh, a lot of production is still very male, sure. especially when it comes to it bleeds into those jobs that are more physical. Uh, and so even though cinematography is not necessarily uh you know, that, that it's not bounded by that. It is so male dominated and it sure. is so important to what we actually see on screen. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that I, I think the degree to which Reed Morano, who t- wasn't the cinematographer of uh, Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Tale, but is a cinematographer. She's a director, though. Like she's a director and was a cinematographer before she background. started directing. Yeah, I think that you can see... Like, a very strong eye. visual eye yeah, that, that is that not is present there, in other right, TV. And that you yes. can feel it. Um, so we wanted to take a moment to salute a few... Uh, 
uh, films that feature the work of female cinematographers mm-hmm. uh, that you can stream. So mm-hmm. Matt, do you want to go first? Sure. My first pick um, is uh, a film that was shot by a woman by the name of Amy Vincent, member of the American Society of Cinematographers, and also the cinematographer on films like Eve's Bayou, which I think have, you've had as I've a pick before. It, yes. yeah. Hustle and Flow, The Caveman's Valentine, the remake of Footloose, as well as episodes of True Blood and one of my favorite uh, shows of the last couple of years, Eastbound and Down. Um, this movie was one that I had never watched before. It was one of her films that was available on Hulu, so I decided to check it out. It is the teen comedy Jawbreaker from 1999. I had never mm. seen Jawbreaker. My wife, though, saw me watching it and goes, why are you watching Jawbreaker? Like, like instantly <laughs> knew what it was, which I thought was really funny. It's basically like the 90s version of Heathers yes. in the same way that like Mean Girls was the 2000s version of Heathers in a way. Um, it also has, I think, very clear um, inspirations or flecks of Clueless in there. There's a strong Clueless vibe. It's also like very similar, even though it came out the same year, to She's All That. There was like something in the air in the year, like the changing of the millennium where people were like, we must have movies about shy, mousy women being made over into bombshells. I don't know why, but apparently it was a thing. It was a thing that was happening. The premise is that you have this clique of cool girls. They kidnap their friend as part of a birthday prank, but it all goes wrong. They like they tape her mouth shut with a jawbreaker, a candy jawbreaker, which I, I, I'm assuming they're still around now. I don't even know. But, like, they were cool. That was a thing when I was in high school. When we were in high school, jawbreakers were, like, a cool candy, at least in my high school. I, I don't know if they were a cool candy, but they were definitely a thing that you could have, especially, like, in elementary school. Oh, they were definitely. Oh, like, really? Yeah. It was later. It was definitely where I grew up in Jersey. It was definitely a thing where you would you would lick these things for hours on end because they were these big, giant things. And so in the movie, this girl, they, like, sort of, gag her with one and tape her mouth shut and then they throw her in the trunk of her car she uh swallows the jawbreaker chokes on it and dies so the girls who are played by rose mcgowan rebecca gayhart and julie benz quite a trio they stage this scene to make it look like they had nothing to do with her death basically they make it look like she was raped essentially and their plans hit a snag though when the previously mentioned shy mousy woman interrupts their work a a, a colleague from school do you know do you remember who plays the shy mouse I do not remember really the first person you would think of when you think of shy uh mousy women judy greer is the <laughs> That's really unbelievable. Hollywood, you are a delight. And so basically, they make a deal with her in exchange for her silence about what she's seen. They will transform her into, like, a cool girl. They'll give her a makeover and elevate her social status and whatnot. So Jawbreaker was actually written and directed by a man by the name of Darren Stein. And while I think the pl- the premise is solid and the movie is very well cast, it also has Pam Greer, Carol Kane, PJ Souls, William Cat, and... Marilyn Manson. Mm, yes. So of the era. It's, yes. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I actually feel like the dialogue is not one of its strengths. You know, it's, it's not Heather's dialogue. No, or clueless. It's not very stylized, and it, but it also isn't very like naturalistic. It's just sort of movie dialogue. I thought the movie overall was a decent enough diversion. And, and one of the things I did enjoy about it today is I think it actually is a pretty nice time capsule of that era of the late 90s. Um, we were in high school in the mid to late 90s, and I think it does have a, a, the fashions, the fads, the music, the soundtrack is so 90s. Um, but I really actually, maybe it was partly because I'm watching it through this filter, but I thought Amy Vincent's cinematography was one of the best parts of the movie. I love the way she shoots this high school, Reagan High School. 
<laughs> uh, yes. Um, you know, she has it um, shot and lit so that the hallways are very dark. Um, and like the only light sources are coming in through the windows, this strong sunlight coming through the windows so that the interiors of the school and particularly the hallway scenes, they're very drab and very dark. And that's in contrast with the women characters, with these girls who are very colorfully attired. They really pop off the screen. So you have this wonderful sort of juxtaposition between the suffocating world of the high school and these larger than life characters. And when you have the bright sunlight, you have this idea of the world outside the school being bright and inviting and the world of the high school being oppressive and drab and just miserable and i thought that was really well done and there's also these very nice montage sequences that are very well shot some very expressive camera moves to convey information and i also like the fact that you know this is a movie about these teen girls who are interested in sex they talk about sex sex is important to the movie because of the plot but the 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 camera work does not sexualize them and they're wearing these bright colorful clothes but they're not really, you know, they're not like sort of seductive or anything like that. That the, the way that they dress is, in a, is like it's more powerful than than anything else. Like that it's sort of this form of expression or to convey that, you know, that they don't mess with me kind of idea. And so, yeah, watching it in this context was fun because I was going, you know, like I don't think, a, you know, a, a male DP – especially working with a male director, I don't think the movie would have looked quite like this. So I really appreciated that about it. Is it a masterpiece? No. I don't think it's as good as any of those other movies we mentioned that are of its type, but I, I had a good time watching it. It's only like 80 minutes. Um, it's, a, it's a nice little diversion. So that's Jawbreaker, available on Hulu. All right. For my first film, uh, both of my films ended up being from 2008, randomly. Uh, for my first film, I went with a film that was uh, shot by Mar- the, film, the DP I mentioned, uh, Marisa Alberti. It is The Wrestler, which is available for rent and also is on Cinemax streaming, if you have Cinemax streaming. I figured out that even if you have HBO streaming, you do not get Cinemax streaming. Oh, really? Yes. Mysterious. Hmm. Uh, This is, of course, Darren Aronofsky's 2008 film starring Mickey Rourke as Randy the Ram Robinson, a once famous wrestler who's never been able to bring himself to leave the party, even if as the crowds have gotten smaller and the venues significantly shabbier and the paychecks much, much smaller. Um, Alberti shot Todd Haynes's Poison and Velvet Goldmine. She shot Crumb and Happiness. But she also has a background in documentaries. Uh, she shot When We Were Kings and Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Worked with Gibney a lot. Yes. she's. Uh, you can see the kind of intent to evoke documentary at, at times in the look of The Wrestler. It uses a lot of ambient light uh, and handheld camera work to just capture a sense of immediacy and realism in in letting it really gives you the sense that you are letting randy the ram robinson lead the story that the the, the film is almost just following him uh, along this path towards either letting go or <laughs> doubling down to his own destruction and it it the film like is very good at in particular, capturing all of these kind of lower rent spaces through which he moves, which he has basically been consigned at this point in his life. There are all of these fluorescent lit back rooms at the venues and the way that the light there mm, turns up versus the spotlights on stage in the ring. Uh, And the camera frequently gets there in the ring with the ram in his bouts. It gets really close to the bodies and to kind of see both the choreography 
that's happening and the like then the little bits of of action and movement that they they do including like the moment where randy like cuts himself so to for further drama in the ring with this blade that he's hidden um alberti also shot creed uh which has footage in the ring that is slicker and showier by design has that famous one take fight uh but you can see the ways in which that that fight is kind of a relative to the wrestling matches in the wrestler, which do not opt for this quite as long in terms of takes. Uh, it doesn't opt for something that would kind of call more attention to the camera work than what's going on on the screen. Uh, but uh, Alberti used like a range of cameras. She shot in 16 millimeter and I think really brings this interesting, gorgeous contrast uh, between the theatrical choreography uh, of Under the Lights and these very harsh or sometimes very dark spaces elsewhere when Ram is out in the real world. It, it increasingly gives you a sense of why he prefers life and lives for life in the spotlight. It is, uh, you can see everything so harshly when he's out of it. Uh, it's, I think, a really great bit of camera work and shooting. And I think that it is really kind of central to how you see and understand the movie. It, it really feels like you're there in it with him, with this character, rather than just observing him from afar. Um, so that's The Wrestler, and it's available for rent and is also on Cinemax. That's a really good pick. And um, interesting, too, because the world of pro wrestling is maybe a little different now but the world that this movie is about is so male dominated it's It's, such a masculine world right so and and yet it's also so in the film so kind of like affectionate mm -hmm. you know but i just like it's almost like when they people say oh like you know like the best movies about america are made by outsiders because they have an outs it's in a way it almost feels like that to me you know like looking at this world with a different set of eyes like that's always interesting that's a good point yeah all right well uh this topic gave me a a very unusual opportunity because now I get to actually promote the work of a cinematographer that I have actually worked with. Wow. And that is uh, Hillary Spira. Do yes, you remember Hillary? Of course I remember Hillary. Yeah. Back when Allison and I worked at IFC, um, my main gig was traveling to these film festivals, doing these short TV. They were sort of like half news reports, half commercials from these film festivals. And Hillary was very often our DP and our camera, uh, camera woman. And I assure you, she could carry the equipment just yes, fine. And was is also just super cool. She was awesome. Yes. And um, I think pretty sure she came to IFC's attention because she was one of the cinematographers on my pick, this wonderful documentary called Dark On, which was, while we were there at IFC, I think it was one of the, the my favorite things that they released, specifically on the network. IFC, the channel, is different than IFC Films, which put out a lot of great movies. It is about the culture of this thing called LARPing, which stands for Live Action Role Play, LARP. Essentially, it's a cross between Dungeons and Dragons and Civil War reenactments with guys creating these characters that they dress up as and then fight others in like these staged combat scenes unlike soccer fields basically with fake swords and weapons and things like that and the film looks at the game and the culture and 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 things like that but it's also about the lives of the players it's kind of like the wrestler i guess now that i think about it you know that it, there's this main character skip who's like a family man and is the de facto protagonist and given the subject these people who dress up in these ridiculous costumes and fight each other with fake weapons, it would be very easy to make this like a, a, a Christopher Guest movie, essentially, to sort of just 
absolutely make fun of these oddballs with this eccentric hobby. And Darkon is not like that. It really, you know, it treats it with respect. I mean, obviously there are times where you're invited to sort of have a have a little bit of a laugh. It's hard not to laugh at times. And I think that the the characters are in on the joke sometimes. But I do think that a big way that the movie avoids that pitfall is is the cinematography. You know, there's like I just the 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 slow motion of the battles, the low angle shots. There is a way in which the cinematography turns something that's inherently silly into something kind of epic and impressive, actually. And there's a sense of grandeur to what is basically just cosplaying nerds hitting each other with nerf swords. Like, and I don't think that's necessarily an easy thing to do. So you have to give uh, Hillary some credit for that. And she worked again with the directors, uh, Andrew, Neil, and Luke Meyer again. She's done other documentaries, including After Tiller, which is about abortion doctors. Very different documentary, uh, different tone for sure. Um, in recent years, she's moved into fiction films. She was the DP on Katie Hazleton's Black Rock. And I, I'm pretty sure this movie just came out in theaters or is just coming out. Band-Aid? Yeah, I think it's just about to just come out. Just about to come out, directed by Zoe Lister-Jones. She's the DP on that. I haven't seen that, but I'm always happy to see that she's working because she's really talented and... She was great to work with. I she was definitely slumming it with us. It was the, those were those were the lean years, I'm sure, where she was. You know, it was for her. It was just great to have a a, a good paycheck. Um, so she was clearly uh, overqualified to do what she was doing with us. But she was she was great to work with. And you know, I recommend just go to her IMDb page, see what other stuff she's done, see what you can find that's available. Quite a few of them, because a lot of them are little indie movies. They are available on Netflix or Amazon. But yeah, the one that I specifically was recommending today was Darkon. That is available on Amazon Prime. Before we before I do my second pick, I did also want to mention in. Film spotting SVU number one thirty. We talked about camera person, mm-hmm. which is literally yes. A film. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I yes. meant to put that down about a female cinematographer yes. by a female cinematographer, and I think really it is about thinking about who is behind the camera and how that affects what you see on screen. So really, it's worth I, I think following up if you haven't listened to that episode yet. And meanwhile, my second pick is a film called Thirty Five Shots of Rum, which is available for streaming on Fandor. Uh, as I said, both of my films are from 2008. This one is directed by Claire Denis and is about a man named Lionel, Lionel, uh, played by Alex Descartes, who is a train conductor in Paris, a widower who lives with his now grown daughter, Josephine, played by Mati Diop, uh, in kind of the outskirts of Paris in the suburbs and who has come to terms with the fact that their close relationship, or is trying to come to terms with the fact that their close relationship isn't sustainable forever, that Josephine will eventually leave him for a life of her own. The cinematographer on the film is Agnès Godard, who's a frequent collaborator of Denise for decades. Uh, she shot Trouble Every Day and Beau Travail, uh, among others. And she shot 35 shots of rum on 35 millimeter, and it just... I, I think one of the things that's so striking about this film is that it finds this like intense but quiet beauty in the mundane, in these very like working class apartments. It is not set in the part of Paris that gets put on postcards. It is set in a living part of Paris that, you know, is outside of all of the historical districts in a kind of uh, not always beautiful, uh, but kind of lived in area. Um and so much of the film is dependent on understanding emotions and uh, emotional turning points that are not spoken aloud. There are all of these 
intimate shots in which Godard and Denis capture expressions and small gestures that are incredibly eloquent. In particular, there's this sequence that's at a, a kind of bar and restaurant, a cafe at night, uh, which Lionel and Josephine uh, take refuge from the rain, along with two of their neighbors. Uh, one's played by Gregoire, uh, Gregoire Colin, Colin, who's uh, in love with Josephine, but has never been able to bring himself to express it. And then there's Gabrielle, played by Nicole Dogue, who's been in love with uh, Lionel for years and has had no trouble expressing it, uh, despite his rejection. And the sequence is so gorgeous. It uh, has so many different bits of tension and interaction between characters that is all almost based on who's looking at who and who is noticing that. Uh, and it is shot in this buttery light that feels so cozy and close. Like these people are kind of existing uh, in their own little world for a moment. Uh, and I think to a smaller extent, that is the kind of feeling that the way the film is shot evokes in general of this relationship. Uh, you know, there's this like important little bit of business in which both characters buy a rice cooker that they need without asking each other. Uh, and it's this gesture of kindness that doesn't get spoken out loud. And, uh, you know, moments like that, that create this, this sense that their world, these two people love each other so much and have created a, this kind of quiet world for themselves that can't last forever, but that has been so perfect that they're both reluctant to let it go, even though it has to, it has to end. Um, and so much of that is is kind of transmitted by how the film is photographed. It is a great film if you haven't seen it yet. I do really, really recommend it. 35 Shots of Rum. Let's talk about some new movies that are coming to theaters this Friday as we're recording this. There's two movies, two big movies this week. Uh, and what, what a magnificent week for the cinema. Really, the cinema is alive and well. And um, really just a great week, too, to like not be at the Cannes Film Festival, <laughs> yeah, just, which is going so on. So glad. <laughs> just nice counter-programming by Hollywood here to be like, you know the Cannes Film Festival where, we, where they show like the most exciting movies from around the world of international cinema, the cutting edge. Yes. This is not that. No, it's definitely not. <laughs> so there's two big movies this weekend. Allison's seen one, and I've seen one. So we'll just we're you're gonna get like half a review of each one. Uh, do you want to go first, Allison, with no, your why movie? Why don't you go first? All right. Well, my movie is Pirates of the. I'm already bored. Pirates of the Caribbean: colon, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and. Uh, that's the review. That's exaggerated. You know, they showed this movie to people at CinemaCon, which is like the annual sort of like, I, I think it's mostly for exhibitors, but it's become more like a press event, a press these, event days. these days, right? Where some, some journalists go and they get to see the slates for the movies and they people come and promote and they do show some stuff. And they showed this there and people loved it. And all I can think of is like, in, it was in, I think CinemaCon's in Vegas. And don't they like over-oxygenate those spaces to it's make possible. people euphoric? I have to assume that everyone's drunk as well. Maybe that's it too. I because the people were like it's the best movie uh, best pirates since the first one which first of all even if that was true is like damning it with the faintest of praise 
I thought this was the worst of all the Pirates movies. I thought it was Ooh. borderline unbearable. Just just awful. Just awful. I mean, it is it is like every single one of these movies, but just worse. That's the only way it's different than the other ones. And I love the first Pirates movie. I haven't been satisfied by any of the sequels. Maybe I'm just a misanthrope. I don't um, know. No, I, I think that You feel the are, same way? Yes. They are barely... The, if you could... They're so barely coherent. Yeah. Sometimes not coherent at all. Yeah. That sounds like this movie. Are you sure you didn't see this one? I definitely did not. You're describing this one well. I was just like, there is nothing about this that I want to see. Yeah, it's it's pretty incoherent. It is really, you know, it's it, if you've seen any of the other sequels, it's very similar where, you know, uh, Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow no longer had like he's just just a, a collection of goofy, wacky ticks and mannerisms. Uh, he has an enormous amount of screen time, even though he's really best served to be a supporting character. Right. Um, he has they've almost like literally replaced Orlando Bloom and Keira Knightley with like like. They, they found like like They're, find me the person that looks like them at like 25 can you do that and they found these younger actors and just plugged them into their roles and and gave them vague they're all looking for this thing the the trident of poseidon there's always a macguffin there's, it's the exact same movie there's a mystical macguffin Everyone's chasing everyone. There's high seas. There's battles on the high seas. And everyone wants this thing. Jeffrey Rush is back as Barbosa. Uh, Brenton Thwaites, who was the the star of Gods of Egypt. I, right, I remember. He plays Henry Turner. He plays the son of Orlando Bloom's character. Orlando Bloom has a very small role. But he plays the son. And Orlando Bloom is 40. Brenton Thwaites is 27. <laughs> And so you think you do the math, guys. Come on. Yeah. And so he's trying to get this thing so he can like save his father who's been cursed in one of the previous sequels. And uh, Johnny Depp wants it for God only knows what reason. Javier Bardem is the bad guy. He's like another ghost pirate because there's always a ghost pirate in these movies. Of course. Of course. He's Captain Salazar. Literally 40% of his dialogue is just him saying, Captain Sparrow, like over and over again, while black goo comes out of his mouth. He looks, remember like Danny DeVito as the penguin had always had like black goo coming out of his yep, mouth. Yep. They like, it was like they found the black goo from Batman Returns and just, just spit it out, Javier Bardem. Just do, do that. It's, it is Magnificent is what you're saying. It is yes, ten out of ten, best film of the year. That's what I'm saying. I I I I was distressed. <laughs> it sounds like, and I was particularly distressed because it got such positive feedback at CinemaCon, where everyone's like, did everyone see the whole thing, or did they just? I see believe footage? they showed the whole movie. Is my understanding they showed the whole movie, um, my, like minus the closing credits, which you know they're just the credits. Right. So I I don't know what what is going what on happened there. in the interim, but. I found this very, very bad and would recommend you avoid it. Maybe you should go see the other movie that's opening in theaters uh, next weekend, which I haven't seen, but Allison has, which is Baywatch. It is Baywatch. Here's what I will say about Baywatch. Okay. I was expecting such bad things. Yeah. And that it, the, the, it, it like was not that bad. It was not as bad as I was expecting. Oh, that's good. Yes. I mean, the problem with so many of these uh, recent attempts at rebooting TV properties that I think the intended demographic doesn't even remember. Certainly not. Is that all of them try to also pull a 21 Jump Street. And in doing so, they show how difficult it is to do something as clever as 21 Jump Street was. 
uh, the movie 21 Jump Street, of course. Uh, this Baywatch is a kind of self-aware, but also f- kind of just like general R-rated comedy. You know, it, it's like a kind of self-aware TV remake that occasionally makes winking references to its source material, mm-hmm. including a listed cameo from David Hasselhoff and an unlisted cameo that I will not spoil, but that you can probably guess uh, as the other most famous person from Baywatch. Sure. And it is, you know, has a preposterous plot. Werner Herzog. Of course. Yeah. You know, famous Baywatch cast member, Werner Herzog. <laughs> uh, it, it, it basically, the movie just tests the limits of the rock's charisma and ability to be just sheerly watchable and likable. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think he is intensely watchable and likable. And this movie rests entirely on his brawny shoulders, his brawny necklace body. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Zach Efron shows up and I did enjoy the fact that he was essentially the damsel in, in this, in okay. this preposterous plot multiple okay. times. He is so, like muscled. Yeah, what is it, happening with I his body? Know. I find it genuinely troubling. I do too. Like he in this movie, he it looks like he has extra abs coming in, like the way a shark has another row of teeth coming in in the back, so that when it loses like the front row, <laughs> there are like teeth to replace it. Like he has that with abs. Like I think it is. He also has. I I mean, if you've read, uh, I think it was McMen's Health that did a story on kind of like the building of the Hollywood male body in recent years okay. of like the kind of workouts behind it, but also yeah. of the uh, approach to it. He looks like he's very dehydrated. Like yes. He oh, looks he like, definitely you know, is. Like yeah. He, he hasn't had a sip of water in no. like six years. And I think that's the thing is that he is in, in really incredible shape, but he's also, he's down to probably very thirsty. Like, like three or 4% body fat. <laughs> yes. And he looks like he hasn't had a drink of water in a long time. And, yeah. And that's why his musculature is, sh- musculature is showing up so much he looks i mean it's like every shot of him looks like someone is going frame by frame and like photoshopping him yeah, it's uncanny it is uncanny uh you know i i have liked him in comedies before sure i don't think this one serves him particularly well okay. but it does use him as a butt of the joke a lot which i appreciated right uh and that's about all there is to say about this movie oh and priyanka chopra is like actually kind of fun as the villainous oh um, that's good i you know i feel like she also deserves better but at least she seems to be having a good time uh, yeah, and then there are some of the kind of usual uh, kind of gay panicky jokes, which apparently yeah. the R-rated comedy cannot get away from, no matter how hard it tries. <laughs> not allowed. No. Um, yeah, but it, it is otherwise. I mean, the world did not ask for a Baywatch movie, and even the movie itself seems to be not quite sure what a Baywatch movie means. Right. And so instead, you get this kind of like half-joking movie that occasionally throws in bits of gestures towards the old series, which I personally do not really remember at all. Uh, I know. do. And so it's caught in this weird space between spoof and nostalgia that apparently we exist in now. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Is there, let me just ask one question. Yes. Is there a joke about Baywatch Nights? No, and I don't think so. Huge that's missed a opportunity. Huge missed opportunity. Huge. Absolutely. Can't believe it. Oh, if people terrible. who are listening have no idea what I'm talking about, just Wikipedia, Baywatch, Baywatch Nights, Nights. Is, or maybe YouTube, it would be even better. And a, prepare yeah. yourselves for one of the transcendent pop cultural moments of my lifetime. Yes. It's really something. Uh, yeah. 
I no, it does nothing so kind of. Clever. Maybe the sequel will be called Baywatch Nights, and it'll just be a full on like episode of Please Baywatch don't Nights. Don't wish us a sequel. <laughs> I've already written the script. Would you like to see it? I have it right here in my bag. Absolutely. Okay. Um. Yep. Yeah. So there you go. Those are the new movies you can see this week. Enjoy. Uh, before we get to uh, Behind the Eight Ball, very quickly, we have a uh, another contest for a a Blu-ray that is coming out. This is very exciting for me. We have three copies to give away of Aftermath, the latest film from Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I liked quite a bit. Uh, I did not see. Fired. Get out. Get out. We're recording in your apartment. I don't care. <laughs> I live here now. Get away. Uh, yes, let me read you the plot description. Uh, Romans, Roman would be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Roman's life changes forever. When he loses his wife and daughter in a plane crash, he attempts to move on from the tragedy, but soon finds he cannot face life without confronting Jake, who's played by Scoot McNary, the air traffic controller responsible for the accident. So this is not an action movie. It sounds almost like the exact premise in a lot of ways of uh, collateral damage, like an action movie that Schwarzenegger made at the end of his the first part of his career. So it's sort of the same thing, but it's a, it's a drama. It is a dark film. Uh, Maggie Grace is the sort of the third lead in it. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. You might have to be more of like where I am, where I'm just fascinated, endlessly fascinated with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But I thought he gave a great performance here. And I thought it was a really interesting movie in terms of the way it spoke to that old Arnold character and what happens to that guy when he gets older and... It's a very interesting movie, and we have three copies to give away. If you don't win a copy, and we'll tell you how to win one in a second, I do want to let you know that it is available, or it will be available on Blu-ray, DVD, and on demand on June 6th. So here's how you can win a copy. Every week, uh, or every other week, I suppose, Allison posts uh, about the new episode of SVU on Facebook. Our Facebook page is facebook.com. Um, slash, what, what's the exact address, Allison? Facebook.com slash SVU. Perfect. So what you need to do is, when you're listening to this, is go to Facebook.com slash SVU, and you probably have to like the page first, but I'm sure you've all already done that. Once you like this, then share the post. It'll be pinned to the top of our page, and it'll have the latest episode. If you share that post, we're going to take all the people who share the post and pick one random winner, or I guess three random winners, and three random winners who we will then contact on uh, on Facebook Messenger or whatever. We will get three random winners from all the people who share this episode's post on Facebook, which you can find again by going to the top of our page at facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. Uh, I guess you'll have we'll do it. How what's what will be the deadline? I guess uh, we'll give you a week from the day that the show goes up. So sure, all the shares from uh, the the first week of the show being up, and we'll have three winners who get aftermath on Blu-ray. Go see this movie; it is worth checking out. All my Schwarzenegger uh, aficionados out there definitely want to see this one. And again, it is available on Blu-ray, DVD, and on demand on June sixth. All right, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap up the show with three new releases on streaming to listener recommendations you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, would you like to go first? Yes, I would. All right, so let's get three new releases on streaming. Okay, first up. Brand new to Amazon is Moonlight, Barry Jenkins' Best Picture winner, one of the best films of the year. Uh, it's kind of exciting that 
like things like Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea have ended up so kind of quickly on streaming. It really feels like a glimpse of the very convenient, if slightly terrifying future. So if somehow you have missed Moonlight or if you would like to give it another look, it is now streaming on Amazon. Streaming on Netflix is Tag. This is a 2015 film uh, from Shion Sono, who is the very prolific Japanese director of things like Love Exposure and Cold Fish. Uh, this film uh, sounds really interesting. It's got a premise about uh, this this schoolgirl who finds herself in multiple realities in which everyone around her keeps getting murdered and tries to figure out what is going on. Uh, so that is Tag. It is on Netflix. And finally, also new to Netflix is Mindhorn. This is a Netflix acquisition written by and starring Julian Barrett of The Mighty Boosh as the star of an 80s TV show, not quite like Baywatch, but not unlike Baywatch, uh, about a special forces operative who has one of his eyes replaced with a lie detector. Um, and is now, that star is now a kind of barely employed actor who loses his last gig as an endorser of orthopedic socks, and then gets called back home because there's a suspected murderer who believes the show is true and insists he will only speak to Detective Mindhorn. Sure. Uh, Barrett, that old story again. You know, uh, Barrett seems so inspired by the kind of Steve Coogan-esque, like, narcissistic, aging celebrity that, in fact, he manages to have Steve Coogan appear. <laughs> as does Essie Davis from The Babadook and Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. So that is Mindhorn, and it is on Netflix. You had me at Steve Coogan-esque. I'm adding it to my, my list right now. How about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up, we have one from Mark, who writes, Hey guys, I have a very special recommendation for you. The movie is The Magic Crystal, a Hong Kong action picture from 1986. Andy Lau stars as some sort of cop or secret agent named Andy Lau. <laughs> who comes across a giant hunk of jade crystal that turns out to be an alien life form capable of controlling men's minds. The film is a sort of E.T. ripoff as the crystal is being pursued by Interpol in the form of the great martial arts actress Cynthia Rothrock and the KGB in the form of the famed Australian stuntman and actor Richard Norton. It's directed by Wang Jing, whose films are notorious for a sense of humor that is insanely broad and weird. Mm. For example, at one point, a supporting character is tricked by the jade into thinking he has feet for hands and hands for feet. The plot is total nonsense. The subtitles don't help you understand it. And the fight scenes are electrifying. You can find it on Amazon Prime. I am sold. I was told Sounds basically to me. from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you for that, Mark. And I've got a recommendation from Kevin who writes, I'm writing to recommend the classic truck driving, arm wrestling, father-son bonding canon classic over the top, streaming on Tubi TV. There I was, a Tuesday night with a little more wine than is probably necessary, looking for something to watch. I stumbled across this Stallone vehicle, get it, and realized I had never seen it. I put it on expecting a laughable and silly action movie, but it has so much more heart and charm than I could have imagined. The music is corny and the acting is more than a little silly, but I found myself genuinely enjoying every minute and that's not just the wine talking. My son will be born in just a few days. Congratulations, Kevin. And while I don't think I'll be arm wrestling any truckers in Vegas anytime soon, I hope that someday we can sit down together and appreciate over the top in all of its sweaty seatbelt free glory mm -hmm. That's a great recommendation. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. And one film chosen by the, by my list. You gave me number nine. Number nine on my, my list is London spy. 
This is a British miniseries. I think it was on BBC Two, starring Ben Wishaw as a hard-partying Londoner who discovers his new boyfriend has been killed and that he actually worked for MI6. He was a spy. And then tries to figure out what happened to him, despite not being at all spy-like himself. I've heard good to mixed things about this, but I do like Ben Wishaw a lot. And I kind of, I don't I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of this as like, looking into your secret significant other's past mm-hmm. uh and so that's london spy that is on my my list that yes are you ready yes okay give me three new releases yes first up available on hbo go and hbo now is a new documentary mommy dead and dearest have you seen this allison I have not have you do you know the case no. Oh, oh wait, man. no, I do, because this was, was a BuzzFeed it case. It was. It was a great article on BuzzFeed. Yes. One of the wildest true crime cases I've ever read about, for sure, uh, about a daughter who may have conspired to have her mother killed, but for a, I guess, a pretty good reason. As any, If any reason to have your own mother killed is a good reason, this woman may have had one. I don't want to spoil what happens if you don't know the case, because the, it, the, it's such a wild and unbelievable story that not knowing it, if you don't know already... Go in unspoiled. That's part of what makes this film so fascinating. But it's a a very well-made documentary. It has excellent access to the people involved, to some of the witnesses, to some of the survivors, including the daughter who has quite a story to tell. And if you have read the the article, which I had, it was a great article on BuzzFeed about this incredible story, it's still a, a really good documentary to watch because you get to see these people that you read about and there's archival footage, home movies that are really disturbing. So check it out. It's Mommy Dead and Dearest. It's available on HBO Go and HBO Now. Next up on Hulu is one of my favorite indie comedies of recent years, Goon, starring Sean William Scott, the underrated Sean William Scott. I am a Sean William Scott fan. I think he's unappreciated. He plays a minor league hockey enforcer. It's a new riff on the lovable loser sports comedy, but done with a great deal of affection and a good script from... Jay Baruchel, who's also a co-star in the film, and uh, Evan Goldberg, who often works with Seth Rogen as a writer and director. And uh, Sean William Scott is great. Liev Schreiber, who plays sort of the villain, is really good, too. They actually made a sequel to this movie, and I was looking online because I saw it was on Hulu. The movie has already come out. It's not only done, it's been released in Canada, but I haven't heard anything about a U.S. release. I don't know if or when it's coming out, but I I hope it shows up here eventually because i'd like to see the sequel i really enjoyed the original that's goon available on hulu and next up also on hulu uh is a movie i i haven't seen but it sounds really interesting it's another one of these uh hulu seems to be acquiring some interesting docs this one is called becoming bond it is about george lazenby who's famous as the first man to replace sean connery in the role of james bond in the film on her majesty's secret service Lazenby was basically an unknown when he was chosen for this role. He only made one James Bond movie and then quit. His career after that was, I would say, undistinguished. So he's got an incredible story. And having seen him on DVD special features and interviews on television, I know he's a very good storyteller and interview subject. And I'm as well from what I've read in this movie, he gets to sort of narrate his own story. So I'm really interested to check this out. That is Becoming Bond, available on Hulu. All right, two listener recommendations. Okay, our first comes from Jesse, who writes, Big fan of the show. I'm currently working through the back catalog. Just finished episode 75, and I haven't caught up with the most recent shows as of yet, but I had to write in after seeing that your latest episode uh, reviews, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. David Yao, who plays Marshall, fronted the legendary noise rock band The Jesus Lizard during the 1990s, and he was known for his confrontational and wild onstage antics, 
well, partially off stage, as Mr. Yao favored diving into the crowd as often as he could, microphone in hand. If you're interested, you can see what I mean and check out the Jesus Lizard Club, which is currently streaming for free on Amazon Prime. This film documents a live reunion show from 2009, and it becomes immediately apparent that they didn't slow down for a bit. I was fortunate enough to catch them on this tour when they came to Boston, and it was hands down one of the best shows I've ever seen. So that's the Jesus Lizard Club, and that was a recommendation from Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Next up, we have a recommendation from Alex, who says, The act of killing was mentioned in a previous episode, but I'm not sure if it's a follow-up. The Look of Silence was ever mentioned. The documentaries shed light on state-sponsored killings that occurred in Indonesia. It's heavy material, but I truly believe that viewing these films can breed empathy with viewers, and the world can always stand to be more empathetic. You can rent The Act of Killing from most digital streaming stores, and The Look of Silence is streaming on Netflix. If we haven't mentioned it before, I I think we probably have, but I, I don't know. But they're both really good movies. They're both worth checking out yeah they're incredible yeah so thank you for that recommendation alex okay and one from your my list you gave me number three and right now on my 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 list uh number three is mystery science theater colon the return which is how they've uh described and separated their the new kick-started version of mystery science theater 3000 with the new cast including jonah ray uh, the old robots, but done by new puppeteers and uh, voices. I've only had time, much to my chagrin, to watch the first episode, which I enjoyed. I've heard that it gets a lot better, too, as it goes along. I've heard the second episode is really, really funny. I just haven't had it. You know, they're like they're movie length episodes. Right. I just don't have time to watch them. I did feel like at least in the first episode, it was kind of strange. The structure was sort of strange. On streaming, because the structure was built around commercial breaks and having to leave the theater. And on streaming, there's no reason to do that, really. So I thought that was a little odd, even though I've watched many of the old episodes online and never felt that. I guess when you're making them for streaming, that seemed a little curious. But I liked the new cast. I liked uh, I liked a lot of the jokes. I was laughing at the first episode. I, I do want to watch more. It's just I have not had time. But... Yeah, the, the 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 series is listed on Netflix under Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Return. All right, time to discuss our listener's choice options for our next episode. We have three films by one filmmaker. That filmmaker, Allison, is... David Lynch. David Lynch, because for the first time in a very long time, there is new David Lynch content yes. not a film but it's a tv series you may have heard about this Maybe. perhaps possibly perhaps on the internet you yeah. have seen some content about the old show which is now being resurrected on showtime twin peaks yes is it called twin peaks the return i don't know i, I think don't, it's just, I called, think it's twin just peaks. called twin peaks and yeah. i you know i think it's been marketed very mysteriously because as, as far as i know no one has seen episodes in advance right. they did not do any episodes in advance David Lynch, not one to necessarily be forthcoming nope. in, in interviews anyway. All of the marketing spots have been very enigmatic and very Twin Peaksy. So who knows? Right. Uh, we're not, we're not going to do Twin Peaks itself. Yes, because, we're not you, doing Twin Peaks itself. It's, right. It's also, I mean, we've mentioned it in a yes. recent episode. You can re- watch the old show on Netflix. Or on Hulu. Or Okay. And the, the new show's on Showtime, which if you have a Showtime account or, you know, you can watch it there. Yeah, we're recording this on Sunday before the first episode. Hours before the aired, first show so, debut. Yes. And I imagine if we have a chance to watch it, we can discuss that as well. But we're going to talk, We, we our, our options here are three 
David Lynch movies. And I have the first one here. It is The Elephant Man from 1980, which is available right now for Rent. It's David Lynch's second film after Eraserhead and his first made within the studio system. It was also produced by Mel Brooks, of all people. Yeah. Uh, he did not take a credit on the film because he didn't want people to think it was a comedy, which is just such it's crazy but true john hurt stars as john merrick the film's version of the real life man joseph merrick who is known as the elephant man uh he appeared in 19th century freak shows because of his severe physical deformities this was a critically acclaimed film nominated for all kinds of awards including academy awards and i have never seen it i have never seen the elephant man i've never seen it either so this is one that we would yeah we would we would be we're we're being honest here and admitting one of our blind spots but this would be a way to cross that one off so that is option number one the elephant man and that is available for rent option number two is a film that was not critically acclaimed at the time though its reputation has definitely changed a bit done a total 180 reevaluated that would be fire walk with me which is available for rental and also on showtime if you have it uh this is lynch's 1992 film prequel to twin peaks that was made after the series about the last seven days in the life of laura palmer the murdered girl played by cheryl lee whose uh death is the incident around which the show revolved um it was not received well when it premiered either at the Cannes film festival or in theaters uh but yeah people have reevaluated it and uh also lynch himself has said he told variety that the film is very important to understanding the new series so oh better catch up is is all i'm saying uh i yeah it's a film that i would like to take another look at i barely remember it i haven't seen that one either because i've never gotten all the way through twin peaks and so i haven't sort of gotten to the the movie he made after twin peaks right though a lot of people have made the case that you can see it by itself or even see it before you start watching right right it is a prequel right yes so uh that would be a chance for us to take a look at this film and reevaluate it ourselves and see if we follow the crowd with being like so misunderstood yeah probably the most timely of our three options here i suppose probably the front runner if i'm being honest if we're thinking about this but you could also vote for option number three which is available for rent or on showtime and that is the 1999 david lynch film the straight story and this stars richard farnsworth as alvin an elderly world war ii veteran he lives with his daughter and when he hears that his estranged brother has suffered a stroke, he makes up his mind to go visit him and make amends with him before he dies because his legs and eyes are too impaired for him to receive a driving license. He hitches his trailer to a uh, recently purchased John Deere tractor, which has a maximum speed of about five miles an hour, and sets off on the 240-mile journey from Iowa to Wisconsin. And this is considered, I think, probably one of David Lynch's most conventional movies which right. is you know in a straight w- story right and it's funny because like to for david lynch a conventional movie is unconventional you know it's like up is down and black is white but um this one i have seen but it's been so long that i barely remember it so i'd be happy to revisit it and to consider it again in the context of his wider career and also what it means for david lynch who is so known for making strange and surreal movies to make something more straightforward and uh, almost like i feel like it'd be fun to almost do like a what if like what if he had made more movies like this in his career that could be interesting as well so that is option number three the straight story which is available for rent or on showtime all right which of these lynchian movies should we review on the next episode of film spotting streaming video units uh 
you tell us. You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, May 29th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, June 6th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The FilmSpotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.Bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the David Lynch review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.